Creativity in business to me is about what are the various inputs that we are putting into the business that get this mechanism, this machine to go in different directions than the obvious straightforward direction. Some of that comes from diversity of employees. Some of that comes from diversity of thought. Some of that comes from a diversity of understanding of what timelines are. You know, in Japan, they have 500-year business plans. In America, we're, you know, what have you done for me this quarter? You know, something to be learned there. Hi, I'm Nick Ninton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes. All right, hey everybody, uh, Nick Nanton here. Welcome back to Now to Next, where I've got a great guest for you today. I've got Joey Coleman, and his concept is the title of his book, Never Lose a Customer Again. There's a lot that is going to be fun to talk about here. Uh, we actually have some some similar DNA in, in some of our backgrounds and other things. The thing I love about uh, that I learned from Joey when I met him briefly at our uh, the Consumer Health Summit through our mutual friend Michael Fishman is this idea of this first 100 days in the life cycle of a customer and what often is done very wrong, uh, what you can do right, and what you need to do to never lose a customer again. So there's my somewhat fumbled intro, but I'm, I'm a human being, so we'll go with it. Uh, Joey, welcome to the show, man. Oh, Nick, I love it. Happy for the intro. Happy for the invitation to be here. And I got to tell you, I'm excited about any call when when I'm looking at the person I'm talking to, I see a fantastic Notre Dame helmet and a Rudy Rudiger jersey in the background. I went to Notre Dame. Uh, little tidbit, which I'm not sure you would have known. I was actually in the movie, Rudy, because nice. uh, I was a student at the time when they were filming it. So uh, super excited for our conversation. Awesome. Thanks awesome. awesome. So yeah, Rudy and I are great friends. I did the documentary on Rudy. and. Yep. I- Put Rudy on Broadway as a one-man show for one night. So it was a great guy. So before we get into your business advice, because there's lots of that here, I think, not I think, I know that who we are and where we came from informs uh, what we do in business. And a lot of what I see in your background that at least allegedly it's true, the research we've done, uh, is that you have a life uh, that was lived a lot in creative circles. And it seems to me that uh, you sort of reference that the way I would put it that my parents encouraged me that uh, possibilities were sort of endless. Um, resources were very uh, were very scarce sometimes, but possibilities were endless. So let's talk a little bit about uh, growing up in Iowa. You grew up in Iowa, which I've only been to Iowa once. I just filmed uh, in the Field of Dreams uh, on the movie set about a month and a half ago for a documentary I'm working on. You were one of seven children. Irish Catholic, small farming community, and you decided you made some very interesting choices as a child, some funny childhood moments. Give us a few of these uh, interesting moments that show the way your brain works and how your brain is unwilling to just sit around in a farming community and think, oh, that car looks fine without doors welded shut. I mean, tell us about this, this non-status quo thinking. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I, you know, it's funny, Nick, as you were leading into that, I was like, I wonder what stories he might be referring to uh, based on his research. So appreciate the little assist because there were definitely some, when you grow up in a family of seven kids, uh, 
the plan for what the day is going to look like ends at about 9 a.m., right? Because whatever had been the plan is usually... So I, I learned to live in an environment where flexibility and adaptability was key. Uh, as you mentioned, my background has been crazy eclectic and kind of all over the place. Everything from, you know, yes, creative services, but I was also a criminal defense lawyer. I worked for the Secret Service. I worked for the CIA. I worked in the White House, Office of Counsel to the President. So I've had this insane uh, career path. And I think part of it comes from the way I grew up. So the story you're specifically referring to, uh, my dad grew up on a farm. Uh, The family farm has uh, been in the family for over 100 years. It's a century farm. And we were out and my grandfather had taught, uh, was trying to teach my brother and I a little bit about welding. Uh, We were young. We were, I would judge now as an adult, way too young to be learning about welding. Uh, Or at least to be learning to do welding on our own. Let's put it that. And I just had this very vivid memory of the door to my grandparents' garage opening up and my dad and my grandfather coming out to find my brother and I trying to weld the door shut on my dad's uh, Buick convertible, like old school 70s style gigantic Buick, because we wanted to force the Dukes of Hazard entry. Uh, you know, we wanted to be able to slide without opening the door. And when we had tried to do that before, the reception was less than positive. Why don't you just open the door? And my, as the older brother, my thinking was, well, if it was welded, we eliminate that opportunity or the possibility of opening the door, which creates a little constraint that will have a nice outcome for us. Uh, so I would say that's one of many stories of crazy things that happened growing up in a environment where there was maybe a little bit of a longer leash than a lot of kids today experience. <laughs> I love it. I mean, everybody wanted, I mean, everybody wanted that car. So uh, I, I love how uh, you were trying to force the entry. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, we also just for fun, we have some, uh, I have mentioned of stories of uh, jumping off the roof, wearing wings, trying to fly like Icarus uh, and also yes. dragging your youngest brother behind a four wheeler attached to a paraglider to see if he would fly. Yeah, and I will tell you, ironically enough, that one happened in the last 15 years. So that's not even like a growing, like I, I can't claim the, the the foolishness of youth. My youngest brother was born when I was a senior in college. Okay. So there's a nice expanse between us. And yeah, we, we had a paraglider and we had a four-wheeler and we had somebody that was light enough that we thought we might be able to create what you see at resorts when they pull someone behind a boat in the middle of the heartland in a field. Like, oh, well, what if we just pulled them behind fast enough that we could get them? And he was light enough. It didn't quite work the way we were hoping it would work, Nick. Uh, and the pictures turned out horrible because we also decided to do this as the sun was setting. So if you're going to pro tip for all of the viewers and listeners, uh, if you're going to do something like this, start earlier in the day when you have daylight to work with, as opposed to having people trying to hold flashlights so you can see how high up he is because it's gotten that dark. Uh, yeah, lots, lots of, let's just say uh, you can take the boy off the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy, I guess. I, I love that story. It's also funny hearing your story of the, uh, the expanse and the kids. Uh, Rudy, as we are talking about earlier, he said that, uh, you know, he's one of 14 kids and he said every time it's parents got in a fight that have another kid so it sounds like you were in a, a similar scenario there um we we share similar backgrounds and i went to law school as well i, I too am recovering attorney I, I never practiced in any meaningful way thankfully for the rest of the world um but you also have a lifelong love of art and music which again i find super interesting that you're you're in the creative field and you actually your your agency is really a, a branding agency of sorts just a different 
type of branding agency. We'll get into that. Um, my business partner and I, you know, I'm a songwriter. I have an, a publishing deal in Nashville, so I've been a, a writer forever. I got country music on the radio and all that stuff. And uh, and I went to law school, and uh, I too had to get a real career. Um, but I've used my love of music and art to inform, I think, probably um, more so, definitely more so than if I hadn't had some of that creative experience, to create something that I knew the possibility was possible because of the different avenues of creativity I've been able to explore in, in music and now in film, but also through knowing sort of the rigidness of law school, like that there's there's creativity within boundaries and no other than uh, with someone who you're trying to make advances at never really means no. Um, you know, that that if a, if a lady or if someone of the opposite sex or someone of the same sex you're after says no, that does really mean no. But in business, no really doesn't mean no. And in most other like social settings for um, for trying to create possibility. Uh, again, in no, I'm very, very careful. In no way, in anything that would hurt or harm or do something against someone else's will. But, but it creative outcomes and creative solutions is an endless supply, an endless realm of possibility in business, right? Oh, a hundred percent, Nick, a hundred percent. And I, I feel very fortunate. I think at the end of the day, what's interesting is lots of times people will say, well, are you more right-brained or left-brained? Yep. Right. It, to me, there's a fundamental problem with that question in the sense that you have both a right side and a left side of your brain, no matter how you answer that question. So actually you're both. It's just which one has been getting the focus, the attention, the appreciation, the influence, you know, which one gets the most uh, attention. And I think what I benefited from, not only the way I grew up, but, you know, my educational experiences, my career experiences, is that I flipped back and forth between the left and the right side of my brain so often that the bridge between those two hemispheres is well established and built. And I can literally jump back and forth in the same conversation. I mean, I'm a guy who, you know, has a T-shirt that says I draw pictures all day from the time when I was designing logos was the bulk of my time, who also had written briefs for, you know, state Supreme Court arguments. So it's like at the end of the day, I think we as humans are much more complex than we give ourselves credit or respect for. And wherever we have the opportunity to delve into all aspects of our humanity, that opens up the aperture for possibilities beyond what we can even imagine. Totally agree, and, and I'm not a uh, brain surgeon or a physician, but you know the the brain is, is a muscle in, in a way, right? And and so it's how we exercise it. I interviewed uh, my good friend James Altucher. We, I just did an eight part series on James that's on Amazon Prime now, and so I spent a better part of a year and a half in different parts of the world with James, and James exercises his idea muscle every single day and he writes down 10 ideas and he's got his his waiter pads no james is a good friend he is a smart i often describe james as i've had the pleasure to meet a lot of super intelligent people i bet james is top five smartest people i've ever met and part of the reason for that not the only reason but part of the reason is that exact thing you're pointing to the idea muscle he's constantly pushing himself to consider new angles new approaches and you know he's a guy who like you and me also has a very eclectic career and path that i think has influenced his perspective and his worldview 
from where he stands today. I totally agree. And, and the funny thing about when I was filming with him, actually in the doctors, you sort of see, we start doing some 10 idea exercises and like, it's sort of hard once you get to eight or nine, a lot of times, like it's easy to get two or three pretty good ideas, maybe five or six. And so, yeah, I think the same thing with our, our left and right side of our brain. We have a, a book out called story selling and we talk about the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain. And what most people get wrong is most people know sort of the right side of the brain is like this uh, creative side and this left side of the brain is this this analytical side. What's really interesting about telling stories is that to make up a story is typically using the creative side of your brain, but you may have to use the more more analytical side of your brain to structure the story. And by the way, when listening to a story, it actually appeals to the left side of your brain because it helps you make sense of things that otherwise wouldn't make sense. So you're, you're totally right. We are uh, ambibranderous uh, when, we, when we look at the way our, our brain operate, operates. Um, I love the fact that you have brought sort of this, um, this create, you actually even have taught a course called creativity in business. I had, I've never heard of that course. Uh, I don't think they offered it where I went. Um, but to me, I think one of the biggest secrets you could probably take away from this is that everything you've done up to the point of where you are right now, even side expeditions are super relevant in your business problem solving moving forward. I mean, uh, Jay Abraham, another good friend of mine, I did a documentary on Jay Abraham and Jay said, uh, people tell me all the time I've exhausted every possibility. He'll be like, well, tell me what you did. And they'll be like, well, I did this, I did this, and then I did this. He's like, so you tried like three things? You think that's every possibility? Tell me a little bit about how uh, business creativity works and maybe if you have a framework or two where people might think through that. Yeah, well, I appreciate what Jay has to say. I mean, there's there's more possibility in the appetizer menu at a restaurant than three options usually, right? And it's yeah. like, come on, we got to go further. Well, it's funny, the business and creativity course or the creativity and business course, uh, there's a funny little backstory as to how that came to be, which I think will illustrate this point that we're making. So I had quit practicing law. I had moved to Massachusetts uh, because I was dating someone in Massachusetts and I was tired of driving 19 hours to take her to dinner. And I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do or what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to take another bar exam, right? I wasn't, no. you know, I just was kind of at a loss. So one bar exam is plenty. I had already taken two different states bar exams. I didn't need to pick up the trifecta and wanted nothing to do with that. So this is not long after September 11th, about four months later. And I decided that I should teach a course on how to understand terrorism. Now, wind the clock back 20 years, this was something most Americans had no context for. At the best, they had seen it on the news. And right. even then, it was something that they thought was this small little thing. And then we have 9-11, and it's this huge thing. And it's in everybody's right. life in a much more uh, present way. So I went to the, to the local college, and I said, met with the uh, the registrar and I said I'd like to teach a course on terrorism not how to be a terrorist but how to understand terrorism and here's my background and I worked on these issues when I was with the Central Intelligence Agency and I think this would be interesting they're like look we love the idea but this is January of uh, you know so September 11th had happened in September this is January a couple months later they're like our course schedule is already full sorry, come back to us this summer and we can talk about the fall. And I was like, okay. And I started to drive home and I got a call and they said, look, have you ever taught about teaching in graduate school? Now, I had been talking about an undergraduate course and I was like, there's three years in law school. One thing that I had learned is when asked a question like that, your answer is always yes, even if it's not yes, because now I've thought of it before I say yes. And right. so 
yes, yes, I just thought of it, but yes, I, I have thought of it. She said, well, we'd love to talk to you about that. Will you come back and meet with us? I said, absolutely, when? And they're like, well, is now possible. So I turned the car around, <laughs> we went back, and now I'm meeting with their program for, they have basically an MBA program that runs before and after business hours. So for all the people who had regular jobs who wanted to get an MBA, who couldn't go during the regular school hours, so to speak, they had early morning classes and late at night classes. They said, we need some people to fill in some courses. So do you have any ideas for courses? And I, off the top of my head, rattled off, Nick, the courses that I wish I could have taken. And one of them was creativity and business because I, again, had always seen that right and left brain as being, you know, right connected with each other. And they said, that sounds amazing. Can you get us a syllabus? So I put together a syllabus for seven courses. I sent it to them on Monday. That was on a Friday. I sent them everything on Monday. On Tuesday, they called me and they said, we'd like to hire you. I said, fantastic. For which course? They said, all seven. I said, great. When do I start? They said, two weeks. Now I've got two weeks to prepare seven courses, one of which was creativity and business. And then it's a long about way of answering your question. Creativity and business to me is about what are the various inputs that we are putting into the business that get this mechanism, this machine to go in different directions than the obvious straightforward direction. Some of that comes from diversity of employees. Some of that comes from diversity of thought. Some of that comes from in diversity of understanding of what timelines are. You know, in Japan, they have 500-year business plans. In America, we're, you know, what have you done for me this quarter? Right. You know, something to be learned there. Uh, you know, diversity in perspective, diversity in switching. I, you know, I saw today that Powell's Bookstore, one of the most famous bookstores in America, has released a perfume, and the perfume smells like old books. Now, this is a perfume that only Powell's would make. This is a perfume that I'm not exactly sure I'd be excited to smell, right. but this is a perfume that I guarantee is going to sell because there are enough book lovers and people who know book lovers who will buy this. And so that's, to me, an example of doing something completely unexpected that is totally in alignment. <clears throat> Love it. Creativity and business is all about. Love it. Yeah, I, I tried for over two years to try to convince uh, American Girl, the doll company. They have a they have a, a, a singer-songwriter doll named Tenny from Nashville, Tennessee. And I tried to convince them to put out a record by Tenny because we could have gotten the greatest songs in the world. We've got millions of kids through the store. And, and the person could be 75. It doesn't matter who sings them. It, like, it would have been the easiest thing ever. You wouldn't have to deal with any divas. It's a made-up star. And I... Uh, I just I couldn't couldn't get him to see it, but so perhaps I wasn't quite creative enough. Um, but but I, I love that whole idea and sort of how you you mash these things up. I think one of my favorite ideas of James Altucher's is idea sex. Uh, you know, giving just taking two totally random ideas and say how could they play together. And I highly encourage these types of uh, exercises to try to get your brain to to think this way because I will assure you yet again that uh, doing this will make you much more successful because every roadblock you hit, um, you will be much more creative with the outcome. And, and anytime I've hit a meaningful roadblock, and truly meaningful, and this is going to sound cliche, the outcome has always been better than what I was doing before. It, it, I mean, it was a meaningful roadblock. It, it made me work harder to be better to get past it. And uh, and I became, I got usually gained different skills, sometimes, uh, oftentimes a different perspective. And so I encourage that. You know, your book, Never Lose a Customer Again, uh, we'll, we'll promote it multiple times. You must buy the book. I have the audio book. I have the hardcover. It's, it's a brilliant book. Uh, you are 
our mutual friend Tucker Max helped you with it. So for many people who know Tucker, that's just an endorsement in and of itself. You should read it. Book's really good. And it talks about um, the fact, uh, well, you sort of, in the lead in, you, you give some statistics about that aren't shocking that most of us spend so much time, energy, effort, money, uh, digging in on how to get a new customer. And then we, we really neglect in a lot of cases, most of the time, uh, unknowingly unintentionally, but we really just neglect, uh, the keeping of that customer. Can you give us a few stats on you? I know you did some research on books on how many books there were on sales and marketing as opposed to like customer retention, essentially. Tell us about that. Yeah, so that so there's a lot of stats. I mean, a lot, uh, I imagine most of the people watching, most of the people listening, we just feel this intrinsically, right? The chase is more interesting than the catch. We see this in our dating lives and personal lives, right? right. Most people are more interested in dating than they are in being in a committed relationship. You know, most people are more interested in what's new and exciting, and you know, what's the next movie that's coming out or the next book that's coming out, instead of reading the books that have been out and they've stood the test of time for centuries. So I think there's a natural predisposition. By biologically to chase the new and to try to figure out what's new. But the reality is people have already figured out these answers and keeping something long-term is much more powerful. It has more value and it's going to be better for your business long-term. So as you mentioned, let's look at the area of books. If we were to go on Amazon and we were to go to the category of books and we were to search for the keyword sales to identify how many books had been written on sales and we were to write down how many hits we got and then we were to search the keyword marketing and to write down that number and add those two numbers together, and I promise you there won't be too much math, uh, we would get 1.3 million books that have been written on sales and marketing. Now, if we were to erase those results and instead we were to search for customer experience, customer retention, customer success, customer satisfaction, account management, all the phrases that we would use to describe what happens after the sale. And we were to add those numbers up, even though some of those searches would be pointing to the same book right? Even though we'd still add them up and pretend that they were all unique, independent hits, we'd get barely 30,000 books. And so what that tells us is that for every 43 books that have been written on how to get a customer, one book has been written on how to keep a customer. I find that shocking. I find that staggering. You hear about sales conferences. You hear about marketing conferences. You hear about sales speakers and marketing speakers. You don't really hear about a lot about retention conferences and retention speakers. And yet, that's where all the profit lies. Profit lies not in the new customer. The profit lies in keeping the same customer, developing a deep long-term relationship with them, and continuing to serve them year after year. I love it. And that is a lesson, by the way, for everyone listening, on positioning. You realized that there's a niche to be had here. There's You are now the speaker on customer retention, and you've built an agency around it. You know, we built, my business partner and I built uh, the largest personal branding agency in the world. As far as I know, it's the only agency that focused on personal brands. I mean, most agencies that brand anything. We'll brand anything. And not that they wouldn't work with personal brands, but we only specialized in personal brands. And so a great lesson in positioning. I want to go through uh, in a minute the different sort of phases of becoming uh, a becoming customer. But you've really dialed it in. Uh, your methodology that your trademarked methodology is the first 100 days. Tell us a little bit about how you came to the realization that these are the these first 100 days are the most important uh, to focus on when you are getting a new customer. Yeah, so rewind 20 years ago, and I'm sitting on a you know Friday night reading a report on banking studies, which probably says more about my social life than anything else, Nick. But I'm reading this report, and it says 32% of new bank customers will close their bank account before the one-year anniversary, 
and half of them will do it in the first 100 days. And I thought to myself, wait a minute. In my experience, knowing some bankers, they really pay attention to the bottom line. They pay attention to numbers. You're telling me of all the people that sign up to become a bank customer, 32% leave before the one-year anniversary and 16% leave before the 100-day anniversary? This is staggering. I need to look into this. And so I started looking at all industries around the world, product companies and service companies, online and offline, domestic and international, small, medium, and large, you name it. And what I found is that somewhere between 20 and 80% of new customers with a business will leave before the 100-day anniversary. Auto mechanics, it's 68%. 21% of people break their cell phone contract in the first three months. Uh, you know, software as a service is 20% per month repeating and recurring ongoing. So these numbers, regardless of your industry, are huge. But what was scarier to me, Nick, than that fact was that most businesses have no idea what their percentage is. They don't know which people have either already mentally checked out or are planning to check out until it's too late. And the reason they don't know that is because they haven't invested in the first 100 days. If you pay attention to the first 100 days of the relationship, if you do effective onboarding of your new clients, your new customers, you can have a customer for life. Because the research also shows that if you get to day 101, just barely three months in, and that customer's feeling ecstatic, they're feeling appreciated, they're feeling they have a connection with you. In the typical business, that customer will stay for five years. Now, I don't know about you, Nick, but I can do the math fast enough to know that it's better to have someone continue to be a customer for five years than to have them for 100 days. And once I realized this, I went about trying to figure out how do we solve this problem? What are the best companies doing in those first 100 days to lock their customers in, to connect with their customers in such a personal and an emotional way that those customers can't help but want to stay and continue to do business with them. Absolutely. And, and in the book, you have lots of case studies. It was fun for me to see. Uh, we have many, many a mutual friend, also uh, Yannick Silver. And, and I'm sure I'm sure we've run in. Uh, we've probably been in the same events before, sometimes not run into each other. Um, you, you have a concept that you talk about in the book that I love because people often ask me this question, you know, oh, well, I'm B2C or I'm B2B. And I, I always try to say that people buy from people. That's the way it works. And you have a you have a, a, a term here that I think you coined called H to H, human to human, all business. I mean, all interaction, basically, other than human to animal, uh, like with pets, I guess, or a zookeeper, which I'm not, would be human to human. So business inherently is human to human, whether it's B2C, B2B, enterprise, whatever it is, it's all H to H. What did I miss in that concept? No, you're, you're spot on. I mean, here's the thing, and I, and I say this respectfully, uh, and I don't mean to offend anybody who is really excited about the fact that they have a B2B business or excited that they have a B2C business. Uh, respectfully, you're deluding yourself because you actually have a human-to-human business. You know, there there's actually a number of people, including Brian Kramer, who have the trademark for human-to-human, right? But I came to it from the concept of the human experience is really what we're buying. To your point, people buy from people. They don't buy from companies. And the way we know this to be true is when somebody, your point of contact leaves at a business and you lose that client, that means you didn't have a B2B business. 
That means you had an H2H business that you were calling a B2B business to justify you're not caring about them on a personal level. To justify when they didn't like your price increase, you could say this decision, not personal. All these phrases that are part of our lexicon that continue to perpetuate the stereotype and this belief that there isn't a human being on the other end of the phone or the other end of the email. That's why I think we see the best companies in the world, even in a quote unquote B2B setting, are the ones that when you go to their website, they show pictures of all of their employees. They show bios about their employees. They're letting you know, look, there are real live people over here. You might not ever meet them, but I promise you there's real life people here. Because when you and I know that we're dealing with each other, and if I have a problem, I can come to you as a human, or I face a situation where there's a budget shortfall and I'm not going to be able to buy as many widgets next quarter as I have been the previous quarters, we can actually have a conversation human to human as opposed to, well, that's just business. Sorry, Nick. You know, And so I think it's in everybody's interest to focus more on the human condition of our interactions because that also transcends not only our customer interactions, but the other side of the customer experience coin, which is the employee experience coin, right? Uh, as the customer experience increases, the employee experience increases. As our employees don't like working for us, our customers aren't going to like dealing with us because they've got to deal with our employees. So it all comes back to this H2H, human-to-human concept. I love that. Yeah, in the book you mentioned how, yeah, uh, miserable employees are fundamentally incapable of providing an amazing experience because they're miserable. So first we have to to, to work in-house on these things. And, and by the way, I would say um, this also applies in your personal life. You know, I mean, you got to keep the uh, the internal uh, people in the house happy or else the, the rest of the life uh, doesn't work out so good, right? Hundred percent, Nick. And you know the other thing about employees that I think a lot of employers often overlook. We say, well, employees deliver remarkable experiences for our customers, but they have no context for what that is. You know, my presumption is you've flown first class. My presumption is you've stayed at five star hotels. My presumption is you've eaten at five star, you know, Michelin restaurants or Michelin starred restaurants. The reality is the typical employee hasn't. So when we ask an employee to deliver a first-class customer experience, they don't know what that is. And I'm not saying that's something wrong with them. I'm saying that's something wrong with us as leaders who are expecting our employees to do something that they have no frame of reference for. So what kind of experience are you delivering to your employees that they can go, oh, so that's what it's like to be treated in a remarkable way. That's what it's like to be served or to wait it on or to, to have a luxurious bespoke experience, you know, then it's a lot easier for them to deliver that to our customers. I love that. And I'm not saying by any means that you shouldn't control how you react when something bad happens in business, but I hate that line. Oh, it's nothing personal. It's just business. I'm like, no, it's extremely personal. My family eats from this money. I pay my mortgage from this money. I send my kids to school with this money. Like this is very, very, very personal to me, and and you know we do have to take a step back and and try to be rational about how we re, how we respond instead of react to things. But I mean, everything is personal by nature, and the fact that we are we are people, we are persons, so it's all personal. So uh, we cannot forget that. Another distinction you make is between customer experience and customer service. It's a common sense yet not common knowledge thing that I had never heard anyone explain that before. So would you mind giving us a bit of the difference between customer uh, service and customer experience? 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Nick. And it's something, those phrases are used very interchangeably, even within the customer experience space that I spend a lot of time operating in. And I don't say this from a place of judgment of those that use them interchangeably, but I think it's a, it's a, uh, it's a missed opportunity to realize the unique distinction between those. In my view of the world, customer service is about what we do when something goes wrong how we take care of a customer when something doesn't line up to their expectations, when it doesn't line up to our expectations, when it goes awry. That's how we usually think of calling into customer service. It's a reactive behavior. Right. Customer experience is our vision of what it could and should be. It's how we design things and create things to elicit certain emotions from the people we do business with, to give them feelings, to give them uh, a sense of connection, a sense of personal relationship with us. It's a much more proactive behavior. So what I like to do is look at my, work with my clients and my audiences to say, let's design what the customer experience should be and then insert a customer service element underneath it for when things don't work out that way. Because it's the human condition. There are going to be times where even with the best laid plans, things don't work as well as we would have hoped. We can either complain about that or we can have anticipated and put the resources in place that are ready to, number one, lead with empathy, acknowledge, wow, I'm really sorry. This not only didn't live up to your expectations, it's not living up to our expectations. What can we do to make it better? Let's work together to make this situation better to get us back on track. I love it. Uh, as you bring up empathy there, I'm in a point in my life where I'm super fascinated with empathy. Most importantly, because I'm, I'm doing a doc right now with uh, Chris Voss, the author of Never Split the Difference, what? the creator of Tactical Empathy. And just we've been digging in, writing the outline for this uh, for this doc. And it's like this idea that empathy is a tool. It's a tactical tool. It's not saying don't really feel it. But if you literally are willing to help the other side see that you understand what they're feeling, like there's really no... I mean, I mean, literally, he's proven there's there's no scenario you can't defuse. I mean, from bank robberies to hostage situations. And I mean, so empathy is, is a really fascinating thing that I think a lot of businesses uh, overlook and, and perhaps have a lot to learn about that because they do just think it is just business forgetting this H2H connection there. You have uh, the eight phases of the customer experience, which you break down in the book. Again, uh, you got to buy the book. Never lose a customer again. Get eight copies. Give it to your friends. Give it to everybody you know. Um, but I want to make sure we, uh, on this, uh, in this brief conversation, we at least help people start to understand these eight phases. Cause again, I have not seen these broken down this way. It's brilliant. The first phase is assess. So in, in the customer experience, the very first phase is the assess phase, break that down for us and maybe give us an example of a good one. Absolutely. So for what it's worth, friends, uh, the eight phases, they all start with the letter A. And the concept behind that is to not confuse you, but rather to let you think about if you're getting all eight phases of the customer journey right, it's like getting straight A's on the report card from your customers, right? They love what's happening. You're getting it all done. So the first A is the assess phase, as Nick mentioned. In the assess phase, a prospective customer is trying to decide whether or not they want to do business with you. 
They're checking out your website, your marketing materials, your advertisements. They're maybe talking to other people to learn what it was like to, to work with you. They're seeing what your offers are, how they're priced, etc. In common parlance, this is marketing and sales. In the typical map of a customer journey, this is the bulk of the interactions where we talk about, you know, do they have knowledge of your product? Have they considered it? Do they have awareness of their own problem? How have you matched that into a trial? All of those things are happening in the assess phase. In my version of an eight-step journey, it's a single step. It's the first step. It's an important step, but it's only one piece of an eight-piece puzzle. I love it. So yeah, go you ahead. wanted a company that you know Please. is doing a great job in the assess phase. So let me tell a quick story. Um, as a reminder, in the assess phase, what we want to do is preview what it's going to be like to work with you. Because if we just compare websites of two different companies, chances are they're going to have similar language, similar bullet points, similar pricing. Really what we want to be showing in the marketing and sales or assess phase of the journey for our customer is we want to be giving them a feeling of what it's going to be like to work with us. So I had the opportunity to uh, go to a workshop run by the folks at the Wealth Factory. Okay, Wealth Factory run by a buddy of mine, Garrett Gunderson. He's become a good friend since we started working together. And I showed up for this three-day workshop. And when I showed up, he met me at the door at 9 a.m. for a three-day workshop. I'm a prospect. I haven't paid him a penny with a six-pack of root beer. Now, if you know me and know me well, Nick, you know I drink two things, water and root beer. That's it. I'm weird, but folks... 36 minutes into this conversation, you already knew I was weird. Okay, this is not a reveal for you at this point in the conversation. And he had this root beer and I thought, this is amazing. And I felt seen. I felt appreciated. I felt valued. I felt like I mattered from a six pack of root beer. And I said to him, this is absolutely incredible. I so appreciate it. How did you know? He's like, oh, little birdie told me. I'm like, no, really. How'd you know? He said, Joey, our job at the Wealth Factory is to help you manage your finances, manage your risk assessment, look at your investments, your uh, insurance policies, your tax strategies, et cetera. We help entrepreneurs keep more of their money. If we're going to know all these things that help you with all these things about how to keep your money, we need to know what you want to spend your money on. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What's your vision? What do you like to do? What are the little habits of the little picadillos where you indulge yourself? And our experience based on our research was you like to indulge yourself with a root beer from time to time. So we thought you might like to indulge yourself here. Nick, I said, sign me up. This sounds amazing. Let's do it. I hadn't even been part of the pitch, but he had shown me what it was going to be like to be a client of theirs before I'd even signed on the dotted line. That's how you deliver an experience in the assess phase that draws people to your offering. Garrett, uh, also a friend, a brilliant guy. And, you know, now the, the only the biggest mistake you could make is deliver that in the assess phase and then go back to substandard experiences beyond, totally. right? Yeah, I mean, there's a big responsibility here, Nick, for any, anybody who reads the book or anybody who looks at enhancing the client experience. Once you start to enhance it, your clients are going to expect you to continue to do that, right? It's not going to be enough to just say, hey, we did it once and that should be enough to ride on. No, you need to keep raising the bar. And some people get frustrated by that. They're like, Joey, I just want to be done. I want to put the plan in place and set it and forget it. Autopilot. Well, sorry, you got to get into a different business than serving humans because that doesn't work. Humans are constantly evolving. We're constantly changing. And as we raise the bar of our expectation, you've got to deliver even more for a better expectation next time if you want to continue to do business together. Yeah, I think uh, I was 
I've heard it talked about in different ways, but Tony Robbins, when I was interviewing him, gave me my favorite sort of way to talk about this. And, you know, we, we all sort of have this tension of like wanting to be to be done sometimes or i was talking with a friend about this the other day like have i know a guy who's selling his business for nine figures right and it's like oh man i mean that's a lot of money like man must be so nice and i was like you know he's also a good 30 40 years older than me and he's gonna be sort of done and so really at the end of the day the only thing we can take with us are these life experiences and so i have like riches in experiences to come in those next 30 to 40 years so like why but i but we have this tension like man that must be must be so nice to be done but tony talks about you know human beings um we crave progress you know and no one likes to move backwards no one no one even likes to stand still so so for those of you who are are whining about wanting to set it and forget it want to go on autopilot I, i promise you you um you might do that for some period of time but neither you nor anyone around you would be happy with it in the end you just want to get that burden off your shoulder i get it but really progress is what you demand as a human being and you wouldn't be willing to do it uh one of my mentors dan sullivan talks about if you feel like your past is greater than your future you're going to be in a constant mode of depression uh but only when you feel like your future is greater than your past can you be excited about you know every day and every waking thing that's about to come forward to you so one of the things I love about the way you address it in the book is like I realize um, or you realize when you're writing it that you're giving people a charge to challenge themselves. And most people are thinking, oh, wait a second. If I get too creative with this, then I'm actually going to have to do the dang thing. And so like just remove those two things from each other for now. Dream big, be as creative as you can and have fun with it because there are always, uh, again, as Dan Sullivan says, there's always who's that can help you with that. You don't need to know how you can get a who to help you with that and, and we'll figure that out so dig that uh so- 100 percent again i will just say tying it back to the creativity and business conversation yeah tip we should separate our coming up with big ideas from our discussion of how we're going to implement and pay for them those should be two separate meetings don't even have those discussed at the same meeting have one meeting where the ideas are and come back a week later and say now based on all those ideas which ones do we want to do and how are we going to pay for it how are we going to get the the human power to implement it what happens is we put these governors or these limiters on our ability to actually dream big when we say oh but there's no way we could afford that there's no way we could you know get the team behind that idea and what happens is most businesses have all the great ideas they need walking around within their organization they don't need anything else other than to unleash the talent that they already have on the payroll to dream bigger, to think bigger, to try things differently. And I think there's a huge opportunity there for every business in every industry. There definitely is. And you'll find that those who are meant to be on your team get excited when you start getting creative. Those who are maybe not meant to be on your team uh, or maybe meant to be in a different part of your team uh, are the ones who are going to be a little bit worried. And by the way, it's it's normal for a team member to feel overwhelmed or like, oh gosh, how am I going to add this to my plate too? But again, a great way to sort of separate those discussions so that and by the way when you do separate those discussions and you do get super creative it is super funny uh, and informative to come back like 48 hours later a week later like what was something like what was i thinking that was terrible uh but but you will come up with some great ideas within that but the whole idea is the freedom i mean james altucher again says most of my ideas i do nothing with or i'll come back and like ah, oh, but it really is the, the if you have one or two great ideas 
a lifetime. You can really win, you know? Absolutely. I mean, everybody's trying. And this is one of the challenges I have with, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it and forgive the crassness of the term, but it's, it's a little bit of the business porn that exists in the media today of, oh, well, if I'm not at Jeff Bezos's level or Elon Musk level or Richard Branson's level, I'm worthless. I'm failing. I'm not doing it. And it's like, guys, stop. Just stop. And I say guys because it's usually guys that are doing that, right? And it's like, no, we acknowledge the progress you've made. Here's the one of the things I love about having kids, right? One of the things I love about having kids is you can see progress over time. Now, one of the things I don't love about having kids is it's really hard to see progress from day to day, right? So my youngest son is turning five this week. It feels like he showed up yesterday. And I can remember holding him when he was this big. But I don't necessarily remember every day from this big to standing waist high. Right. Right. And so I think all humans are struggling to actually track progress in our lives. And I love what you said. I'm a big fan of Tony's and worked with him as well. And, you know, that whole idea that humans thirst for progress and the ability to mark progress and to feel progress yet the majority of humans spend a lot of their time on this device going like this well when you go like this where's the finish line there is one one. it's just eventually you pass out or you go decide to do something else and it's like why not it's why i love reading books in physical form Right? Because you actually can feel progress. I read ebooks too, but in a physical book, you can pull that up and go, gosh, I'm two thirds of the way full. I can see it. You can't really see that as easily on a Kindle or an ebook. I mean, you can see it, right. but it's a little bit different, right? And so I love this idea of looking at our lives and figuring out where can we put progress markers. And to bring it back to the business conversation, what are your progress markers for your customers? What are you doing with your customers to let them know, hey, When you started working with us, you were over here. Look how far you've come. Even though we might not have reached the finish line yet, you've made incredible progress and we should celebrate that progress as you go. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I too have uh, have little ones here. Well, not so little anymore. Fifteen, thirteen, and nine. And uh, and one of my favorite expressions someone told me about raising kids is uh, the days drag on, but the years fly by. Like so true in, in, in what you just said. I also one of the other best parts about having kids is uh, you can never think you're that big of a deal because they will remind you very quickly. You know, when I saw Gene Simmons from Kisses uh, reality series years ago, and his kids thought their dad was a dork. I'm like, well, I got no hope. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, the good news is, Nick, that gave permission to all of us because <laughs> if, you know, the leader of you know the craziest, probably one of the best known bands in the history of the world, Kiss, his kids think he's a dork. There's no hope for all of us, but that should be permission to just do whatever we want to do. So welcome to the club. Absolutely. All right. We got seven more phases to get through here in about 10 minutes. Uh, we'll the, fire them. We'll get them. Uh, the admit phase. So the second phase after assess is admit. And and this is where you get the, the prospect um, to have their own realization, which I think that's the absolute key to this phase of the sale is not forcing it, helping them to see something they didn't see before. Uh, you can explain it better than me, I'm sure, but that's what I like about well, it. You don't, lots of businesses think about selling someone, convincing someone, influencing them, persuading them, and all those things are relevant in the assess phase. But to migrate someone from being a prospect to a customer, they have to admit 
that they have a problem or a need that they believe you can help them fulfill. It's basically them raising their hand. And we see tangible examples of the kinesthetic activity they do. They sign on the dotted line of a contract. They hand over their hard-earned cash. There is a physical action involved with the admission of there is a problem that I believe you can help me solve or a situation that I believe you can help improve. And so that's why in the admit phase, and most businesses actually do a decent job in the admit phase because there's some fanfare with becoming a client or signing on the dotted line. So it's just acknowledging that that is a key integral piece in this journey. Love it. And then the affirm phase. So we've signed on the dotted line, as you point out, the more um, the deeper the decision, typically the more expensive or the, the higher the investment, uh, the more thought it took to get into the situation. And everyone is really good at telling us what their solution is perfect for. But there's all of us, <clears throat> we all have this, uh, this inherent wondering of uh, what is this not good for? And what if, what if I'm the broken one? What if it's not going to be great for me? And so we have this affirm phase when we make the purchase sound the dotted line and then we have we start to have this natural bit of uh negative brain chemistry this this that can uh manifest as buyer's remorse or other things what do we need to do in that affirm phase to make sure that the customer is feeling seen and heard and and at the very least seen and heard but hopefully excited to move forward instead of having remorse well nick you hit the nail on the head we've all heard of the phrase buyer's remorse But if I were to ask the folks listening, the folks watching, hey, do you have a system and process in your business designed to address the buyer's remorse that we know your customers are going to feel? Scientifically proven that they're going to feel it. Cue the tumbleweed. Crickets. Nope. Most people don't have anything like that, right? So what you need to do in the firm stage is you need to reaffirm the decision they made to work with you. You need to remind them of their thought process. You need to remind them of what their problem was and what your offer was. And you need to give them the confidence that you're as excited about this project as they were when they took the risk to buy you. See, at the end of the day, most people, their experience when they buy a product or a service, whether it's B2B or B2C, it doesn't matter, is that once you've said, okay, I'm all in, you become a number. You don't matter to the organization anymore. They, they send you the product. They say, oh, fine, we'll, we'll hand you off to somebody else, and they'll be responsible for the relationship going forward. You go from being the thing they seem to be giving a lot of focus and attention to to one of the masses. And what we need to do is let them know that's not how our business operates. Our business is invested in your success. We are here. We are excited about the possibilities. We're excited about the outcomes. Here's what comes next. And the only way to really do that is to systemize it, but with human beings with thought processes. And and, and I would assume, I mean, from my experience, having people in place who are able to to call audibles too when it's necessary because not every human being is going to respond exactly the same way. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not opposed to systems and structures and automations and and those type of tools. I just want to have a human involved that's tracking whether it works or not, you know? And if something starts to deviate, let's not just send them the same type of messaging. Let's acknowledge the reality. And let's take some of this out of the electronic, hey, let's send me an email, right? Pick up a telephone, shoot them a little selfie video and text it to them. You know, send them a little thank you card in the mail. The things that get out of the normal form of communication that they're expecting 
is going to trigger a different biochemical response in their brain when they say, what, a, a thank, I wasn't expecting a thank you note. I wasn't expecting a personal video from the CEO. This is different. This is unique. This is going to be something unexpected because now they're intrigued and they want to continue the relationship to see what happens next. Yep, and the, the exact opposite of that affirm phase, which what normally happens, uh, I love your quick example in the book of where you talk about, you know, imagine dating someone, getting engaged to them, getting married to them, and then you show up at your house for the first day and you say, you know, now this other person is going to take it from here, right? It's a, it's a, a humorous yet really um, poignant example of how, of how this can work. All right, we've got a few more phases to go through here. Uh, activate. So now we've affirmed that they made the right decision. Now we've got to get the client activated. What does that look like? Activation is the first real moment of truth. You want to energize the relationship. That's why I call it activate. This is the first kickoff meeting. This is the unboxing experience when they get your product and they start to, you know, reveal it for the first time. Again, Nick, most businesses actually do okay in the activate experience because they know that that's the start of the conversation. So the typical business is okay with Activate, but what I would ask you to do is to look at, are you bringing a level of energy to the conversation that lets them know that doing business with you is going to be unlike any business experience they've ever had? This is where you start to unwind some of the baggage that they might have brought to the table from past experiences with similar type of businesses or products or services, and you start to get a feel for, okay, now we're in it. What's the dance? What's the cadence? What are the rhythms of our interactions? We want to make we're sh- make sure we're showing up as our best possible self in those moments. Yes, many of us have been in a, abusive business relationships, and we need help getting past those because they're they're built in, and we've all had that remorse. I mean, there's so many national organizations that have local salespeople, like for cell phones, for instance. Like you said, they have a terrible cancellation rate, like a very high one, because I the salesman's like, oh, I I can't do anything about that. You, you I just told you a bill of goods. I can't tell you anything else. Uh, well, the, the, the point earlier, Nick, it's like dating, right? When you start dating someone for the first time, you early in your life, in your career, in dating other people, you don't know what's going on and they don't know what's going on. As you get a little older, you come to realize that when you start dating someone, you're not only dating them, but you're dating all the people that they've dated in the past who have set expectations for them for what dating looks like. And lots of times the unpacking of that baggage is actually where the sweet spot of the relationship is, where you get to either align with past experiences, hopefully positive that they've had, or to separate from past negative experiences and say, look, I get that that's how your last partner treated you. That's not how I'm going to treat you. And we get the chance to redefine. The same holds true in a business setting, especially if you're operating in an industry that has a less than stellar reputation. Right now, you're dealing with the baggage of multiple brands and, you know, the experiences they've had across your entire category, not just with one of your competitors. Absolutely. All right. The next one, we got three more to go here. Uh, Acclimate. Four more. Sorry. Acclimate. The acclimate phase is where you have to hold the customer's hand and acclimate them to your way of doing business. Nick, this is the area where most businesses fall apart. This is where the highest percentage of new customer defections happens because you think you've explained how it works. 
You think you've explained very clearly what happens next, but the customer has no ideas. And if you doubt the validity of that statement, I ask you to just consider when you get something and it has directions in it, do you read all the directions or do you take it out of the box and try to start using it? When you get a proposal from somebody that details all the steps and you sign on the dotted line and you show up at the kickoff meeting, did you bring the thing or are you saying, hey, here's what comes next? No, you're expecting them to do that. And we sign things that we don't read all the time. Something you learned in law school, I'm sure something I learned in law school as well. People are signing things they don't read all the time. Not to mention in a business setting, lots of times the person who signed the contract isn't the person who's involved in the implementation of the product or the service. So we might not have even seen the roadmap or the milestones that were outlined in the proposal or the pitch deck. The person who's executing is like, wait, how often are we doing a call? What comes next? What's the first milestone? So we got to hold their hands and help them acclimate. Accomplish. This is a great one that most of us forget about as well. The accomplish phase is every prospect has a goal that they're trying to achieve. And when they decide to buy your product or service, they think they're going to be able to accomplish that. Two things. Number one, we need to know what that goal is. Lots of times we presume to know what that goal is without ever asking them. Number two, we need to track their progress towards that goal so that when they get there, we can celebrate because the typical customer will not actually celebrate when they accomplish the goal. And if they don't celebrate, we haven't closed the feedback loop that we delivered on what they asked. We, they got their ROI. If we're not paying attention to that and celebrating it, we never get them to the final two phases, which are the phases everybody wants to get to. Give us those last two. The last two are the adopt phase where our customers become loyal to us. They adopt the relationship. They're committed. They're not going to look anywhere else. They are all in. They are loyal. And the last phase, the advocate phase, phase eight, where they become a raving fan for us singing our praises far and wide. See, you might have a lot of adopters in your business, but I bet you want more advocates, people who are actually making referrals. I've yet to meet a business owner, Nick, who said to me, Joey, I'm all good on referrals. I don't want any more. Everybody wants more referrals. We don't know how to ask for them. We don't know when to ask for them. We usually make a half-hearted ask way too early in the relationship. Don't ask for the referral until after they've crossed the finish line with an accomplished goal. It doesn't have to necessarily be their main goal, but lots of times we're asking for referrals five minutes into the relationship, not a recipe for success. Yeah, that's like uh, going on a first date and saying, so could you introduce me to some of your friends? Um, yeah, uh, creepy on all fronts. Um, the uh, the other thing I love about this, you know, we both are in, in this branding world. And to me, this is this is where it all comes together. I, I always just tell people, look, a brand is simply a story. And branding is just storytelling. And a great brand is a story that your clients and prospects want to share for you. I mean, if you do this, your job correctly and you give many creative examples of what to do and what not to do in some amazing campaigns, you've either been a part of or seen uh, in the book. Um, and you, whenever you do this the right way, when someone does it the right way for me, like I, I can't wait to share the story with other people because this actually went better than I expected, right? Like I think that's the litmus test for me. So right. You're so right. I mean, let's be honest. If I were to ask you, are most of the customer experiences you have meh, wonderful, or world-class, you would say, eh, you know, right. like sometimes it, that's the bar for customer experience globally is lying on the ground. All I'm asking people who read the book or who have listened to our conversation, 
just raise it slightly because the second you raise it slightly, you automatically distinguish yourself from the competition and all the other experiences they've had. So this is something that can be fun. It can be exciting. It has bottom line business impact. It has emotional impact for employee and team member morale and excitement. And it just makes us reconnect, I think, with why a lot of us got into the industries we're working in. We had a passion or excitement for it. It keeps us you know, coming back for more. This allows us to do that. I love it. Well, now you know what an hour-long conversation with two recovering lawyers who are extremely enthusiastic, and I'm guessing both have ADHD, what, what happens when you put us both together. Uh, but, hey, I, I really appreciate the, the conversation, Joey. Make sure you go by. Never lose a customer again. Share it with your friends. There's amazing wisdom in there. And uh, make sure you join us next time on Now to Next. Thanks so much for tuning in. Joey, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Now to Next. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.